0: Lead with We is produced by Goal 17 Media, storytellers for the common good.
1: As business leaders, we have to recognize that our customers, their customers, our employees, our communities, our stakeholders expect us to be active, positive participants in the world.
0: Hi everyone, welcome to Lead With We, the podcast that shows you how to survive and thrive in changing and challenging times. And I'm really excited about our guest today. Jeremy Lott is the CEO of Sandmar, a very large apparel company that touches all our lives in many ways that he'll go on to explain. Jeremy, welcome to Lead With We. Thanks for having me. Now Jeremy, most importantly, you have six children and we're all stay at home during COVID-19, this pandemic. What is that like? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a
1: challenge. You know, my oldest is 18. She graduated from high school yesterday. So we did it, it was a drive through graduation. We drove our car. She got out, went up on stage, got her diploma, got back in the car, and, and kept driving. So, and my youngest is eight. So there's a 10 year gap. You know, it's just, a, it affects the kids uh, differently. My bo- wife and I both work, we're working from home. It's been a challenging time for them depending on the age, and uh, but we are doing everything we can to make it as positive and the best out of it that we can.
0: I think that's true of everyone, and we've all had lots of quality time with each other that we didn't even imagine was possible before. I have a 20-year-old and a 17-year-old daughter, and if I had to think of a reason that would allow us to stay together 24 hours a day for 12, 14 weeks in a row, I imagine having a large family is good training for running what is an intergenerational, multi-generational business. Tell us a little bit about... The history of Sanma that you are now leading so
1: my father started the company in 1971 so next year will be our 50th anniversary early on he brought my grandfather in the business so he worked with my grandfather for the first kind of maybe 20 years or so i've been working in the business really since birth but full-time since 2002 president of the company since 2013 We manufacture and sell apparel or other soft goods, things like hats, bags, scarves, towels to people who put a logo on them and resell them, whether it's for company use, for schools, for teams. I always tell people next time you're at the airport and you're waiting to get in line on the plane, you look at people traveling, look at every piece of apparel that has a logo that's not the brand. So it's not a Polo logo, but it says the name of their business, the name of their school, the name of their Church, the name of their, you know, club, all of that product could come from us. It's just a really, it's been an amazing growth story and a really a cool experience to be able to work with my dad. I feel super fortunate to uh, have had this opportunity.
0: And tell me about that. I mean, you joke that you've been working for the company since birth, but I imagine every dinner conversation, what you overhear has shaped you. As you know, president of the company and as an entrepreneur, tell us a few insights. Is there anything your dad shared that really has kind of stayed with you and made a difference over time?
1: CMR, when I grew up, was a small business, and when you have a small business, your kids are free labor, right? So we would go to the office on weekends, and we would stuff invoices into envelopes. We would go and help unload trucks. I mean, we worked in the business, and our family—it was—we didn't talk about sports or politics. We talked about the business. My dad started the business because he saw an opportunity that if he could treat people well, and he always says, tell the truth and be nice, that was his mantra. If he could do that, he could be successful in an industry where that didn't exist before. And so I think there was this values piece that was built in the business kind of from day one.
0: Yes, I think uh, we all take those hard-won lessons to heart, and they shape the companies that we build over time. I mean, as you come in as president now, You're obviously bringing something new to the table. And I see that, you know, you've had your sustainability report come out in 2017 and beyond. Is that something you consciously laid in? Is that something that's risen to the top in the company more recently?
1: I think so. I think that in, um, my dad built a distribution business. Like we bought t-shirts and sweatshirts and we bought them in truckloads and sold them in pieces that, and we made a margin doing that. The big change that I think I led over the last 15 years or so, was building an apparel business that happens to be in this kind of imprinted sportswear, promotional products, uniforming space. And distribution is still a huge part of what we do, but we really built this apparel business. And I think one of the things that we learned early on was this idea that once our product gets a logo on it and everything we sell gets logo, whether it's school, company, church, you know, organization, team, whatever it is it stops being a Sandmar shirt and starts being a pick your brand, Seattle Seahawks or Microsoft or Starbucks. And our customers really cared about how that shirt was made and it was made in a responsible way. So early on, we recognized we had this responsibility. But for me, it wasn't till the of Plaza factory collapsed in Bangladesh. That was really a wake-up moment for me. And I said, are we part of this unfair labor practices, uh, and now maybe dangerous, you know, working conditions and, and things. I'd spent a lot of time traveling, and I've been in factories for years, and I'd seen bad factories, and I'd, I'm being totally honest, we had production in some bad factories. I'd also seen a lot of really good factories, and people that were investing in their communities that were doing the right thing. So we we made a shift at that point that was really conscious for me that was saying, like, we need to work with people that are doing things, And so becoming really purposeful about thinking about our supply chain and our partners and how we could do really positive things. And so that led into our first CSR report and being more transparent and reporting and not just, you know, doing things internally, but actually telling our customers and other stakeholders what we're doing and, and saying, hold us accountable.
0: And for those who don't know about what happened in Bangladesh and how it did wake up the apparel industry, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So if you had gone to Bangladesh before in in Dhaka, there were a lot of uh, factories that were in like multi-story buildings. And you would see sometimes markets on the ground floor and you would see factories kind of above on several stories. One of the factories uh, literally collapsed. The building collapsed, killing over a thousand people. I think as an industry, we just hadn't focused on actual physical safety as something... Um that would be important. And and so this was this huge wake up that, um you know, as brands, we have a lot of influence. We have a choice on where we want to manufacture. So we can be really influential, I think, implementing change.
0: And doing good is self-evident in some ways, but still you've got to sell it in. And every entrepreneur or large corporation has a chief financial officer or an investor or a board that may be reluctant because, you know, maybe that incur certain costs. Like, how did you sell that in internally? So
1: certainly it's easier at San Mar in some respects because we're this private family business and it was like I had to convince my dad, you know. And so, but that was, that, you know, it was over lunch and saying, this is really important. But I think that the real selling point, I think, too, if I'm if I'm selling it to that CFO is to say, look, I understand it might cost me, you know, 25 cents more for the shirt at factory A than it did at factory B but what does it cost me if CBS news shows up at factory B and they show our shirts being made and they show child labor or they show dangerous working conditions. What does that mean to our sales? So there's a true kind of impact in terms of what's the PR risk on a brand. I think the other thing, and I think the thing that we have found over time is that better factories are a little bit more expensive, but that's in your call it FOB cost. What they do in terms of quality and consistency We don't have nearly the problems that we did. So I think that when we look at truly the bottom line for Sandmar, we actually make more money working with better factories. And then maybe the last thing for me was selling it internally was easy because I was able to kind of make this a real rallying cry for our organization. And people got excited about being part of, of social change. And overall, I think it's been a tremendous success for us economically, as well as you know, actually doing good things.
0: And tell me more about that, because that if you are doing good, it would be meaningful to your employees. But everything you do as a business owner, you know, a a family office company like yours, or whether it's, you know, uh, even a publicly traded company, you're accountable in terms of your bottom line. So how do you measure the effect on your employees, on your internal culture? What have you seen show up in terms of the impact it's had?
1: The thing that was interesting to me first was that I thought as a company, it's the place we could have the biggest impact. It's what we do. And we think there's somewhere around 150,000 people globally who sew for Sandmar. So that was a pretty big footprint. And then I started kind of getting, (laughs) I got geeking out on this because I started learning about what were the things that drove positive development metrics in companies, whether it was life expectancy or infant mortality or GDP growth and issues around uh, economic security and empowerment of women were like the number one drivers for some of these really positive development metrics. And I said, okay, well this is an amazing thing because our industry does that, can do that in spades in a really positive way. We started telling this story internally of what we were doing, what our supply chain was doing, how we were choosing factories. And people started getting wanting more. They wanted to hear more. They wanted to learn more. So then we started telling these stories internally about the factory in Ghana Employing women in a part of the country in this neighborhood called Jamestown, where there's zero formal employment for women, and this factory's gone, and how it's creating like what it's doing to kind of intergenerational poverty in you know in this small part of, of, of Ghana. So people got really excited. We would have people come to Sandmar because they'd seen we you know those stories. It became something. It became our best recruiting tool for people who wanted to work at the company. People would come up to us and tell us. This. So absolutely, it really, it was really easy, actually, to kind of galvanize. I, I was almost maybe surprised how excited people were to be part of something that they thought was doing something really positive.
0: Obviously, there is a growing new economy, which is increasingly purposeful because we have to solve for these big issues out there. And I see that you have a vision statement, a canvas for good. Tell us about that.
1: So we've gotten together as a leadership team to really try and define what our vision was kind of for the company and, and, you know, to help that set a strategic roadmap. And we came up with this idea of a canvas for good because we think the T-shirt is this canvas, but it can really do good things. And so we thought about our factories, mostly in the developing world, um, what we could do in the communities and for the people who make our product. We certainly thought about our employees. We invest in the communities here in the United States where we live. And then we thought about our customers, too. And so our customers, again, they put they put uh, logos on products and resell them. So, you know, when you have a, a walk that's raising money for cancer research and everybody gets a shirt, that gives you a sense of pride. It gives you a sense of community. We're raising money for a cause. And so, yes, our shirts get the Seattle Seahawks logo on them, but they also get... You know that cancer research walk and honestly we think that even that seattle seahawks logo it does a lot to kind of build a sense of community kind of within the city that we're in and i think especially as we look at the events of the last few weeks and the level of kind of divisiveness that exists in society today i think anything that we can do that helps build a sense of community is really a positive positive. and i'm not naive enough to think the t-shirts solve everything But I think that when we feel a connection to other people and we're part of a group, that that does help. That's why we created the idea of a canvas for good.
0: And let me ask you, in the same way that purpose has to deliver value to the business internally, it's got to do it externally in your sales and communication. So have you found thinking this way, whether it's the retail partners you work with or, you know, just consumers out there in the marketplace, has it translated? Has it made a difference to the business in the bottom line?
1: It for sure has. I mean, our customers want, they want these, they want the stories of the things that we're doing positively. They want to share those stories with the brands and organizations that they're selling to. If they can tell the story of how this was made in a sustainable way, if they can tell the story about how the factory in Honduras supports the touching hands project, the shirt that I'm wearing today, that is a positive for them in in a sale that they're making.
0: In this new economy, it's natural for a consumer facing brand to show up in ways that are doing good because that resonates with their customers. But why would a B 2 B company like Sandmar do it? You know,
1: I think when we first thought of it, it was not it, w- it wasn't about our customers. It was really about our family and our employees and, and and honestly just feeling personally like this was the right thing to do. And so it really started internally. But then I think when we started talking to some customers and saying, "Hey, you know we're doing these things." And they're like, "Wow, tell us more." It wasn't done at first because we thought anybody cared. It was done because we cared and we thought it was the right thing to do. I think that we found out that even being a B2B company, being purposeful about doing good actually has been a positive for our business, that our customers really care and that they want those stories because they're selling our product and they need to be able to tell them.
0: And in terms of your employees, I know you mentioned it really motivated them. It became a rallying cry, but you also take tangible actions like, why not you foundation and friends of the children? What are you doing to actually put the employees to work in that sense to generate an impact together?
1: We support different, you know, organizations in the communities that we live in every year. And the thing that's been really, I, I would say, exciting about it is it's not just Sandmar writing a check. At the end of the day, we are contributing money, but the employees really get involved. So they get excited about how we're raising the money and they come with, with amazing ideas of we're going to do this, we're going to have a golf tournament and we're going to have a bake sale and we're going to raise money. The level of excitement that's generated internally, the level of just people feeling like they're part of it has been really, really exciting. At the end of the day, the company donates the vast majority of the money, but the employees feel like they've been a real big part of it. You know, but the most exciting thing for me was not the organization supporting something. It was like our credit group, for instance, started a credit cares committee. And so they go out completely independently and on weekends, they'll go work at a Habitat for Humanity or they'll go clean up a beach or they'll do these different uh, projects by themselves. And so culturally, it's become something that as an organization, uh, we want to take care of the communities that we're in and be a part of it. We, we're in this city called Issaquah, which is a suburb of Seattle, and we sit on this hill. And I think we used to look at our world a little bit like we were on this little hill in Issaquah. And I think we really changed to feel like we're actually part of these communities and we have a responsibility to, to give back.
0: I mean, there's no more powerful example of that than how companies have showed up around COVID-19 and the need for PPE equipment. You have been one of the biggest players in the space. So tell us a little bit about how you responded, what that process was like spinning up a kind of crisis response. And the impact yeah. you've been having out
1: You know, the, our, our, we were having a nice year. Our business was good. And then the night that the NBA stopped playing, and you had two teams that walked off the court, and I think Tom Hanks, the actor, kind of came out and said he was positive, our business just stopped. It, and it really fell uh, really hard, really fast. And all the things that we normally sell to weren't happening. There were no kids' sports, there were no schools, there were no concerts, there were no events, there were no conferences. And it was scary because we didn't know what the bottom looked like. We didn't know how long we would be there. We had to send everybody home. We had to figure out how we could keep our distribution centers open, if we could do it in a safe way. And so we're in this real triage mode. We're cutting expenses. Uh, I had to cut salaries for our employees. I cut my salary to a dollar. And I got an email from one of our employees. Her son was an EMT in Bellingham, which is a city north of Seattle, kind of close to the Canadian border. And she said, they don't have masks. And they're telling him to wear a uh, bandana when he goes out. And I'm thinking, this is insane that in 2020 in the United States, we have our first line responders who don't have basic protective equipment. How is that even possible? And so it kind of crystallized it for me that there was this need. We make t-shirts and sweatshirts. You know, what are we going to do? Our largest yarn vendor called us and said, we're putting together a coalition of American textile companies to make protective masks, and we want you to be part of it. And so I was all in. And the amazing thing was, you know, normally to make this shirt in normal times, this is an 18-month process of developing and testing and, you know, all these things. From March 18th to March 26th, we went from never having made a mask before as a business and never even thinking of making a mask to being in production on protective masks. Today, we're making about 10 million a month for the government uh, for their strategic stockpile. We had to figure out in 18 months, we had to figure out how to do those in like seven days. Uh, it was hard, uh, but it was amazingly exciting to be a part of. And I'm really proud of the way our business has been able to be you know part of helping when there was really a need
0: and tell us about that because i think moving forward more and more brands are going to be called on to respond to more and more crises whether it's related to climate whether it's related to pandemics what did you learn about that process that you're going to carry forward that might actually help others do the same
1: we use we use zoom we use microsoft teams we had a command center on teams we had people going in and out, they were working on projects. We took so much of the process out and we said, how can we do this in a really short period of time? And so the way the collaboration, the way people were working was really phenomenal. I've never seen that before. I've never actually been part of something like that. I made a call to um, a woman who is the, um, I think her title is the chief sales officer at UPS. And I had met her once before, her name is Kate Gutman. And I said, Actually, I'd sent her an email saying, here's what we're doing. Would UPS be willing to help? She called me within 30 seconds of getting that email and said, whatever you guys need, UPS is here to support you. Like, I need a plane tomorrow at noon to make this run that no one would ever normally do. It doesn't make any commercial sense, but I have sewers in Tennessee waiting to start sewing Monday morning, and I need fabric from the DR to get there, and how do we make this happen? And so pulling together partners across the globe, Um, our partners in in Honduras, partners in Vietnam, our factory in Tennessee, a, a trans logistics partner like UPS, pulling people together to make this happen. And everybody understood the urgency. And that was the thing that was really amazing.
0: And any lessons that you learned on the way that you think, wow, I'm going to do things differently moving forward?
1: The biggest lesson I have learned Throughout all of this, you know, when you're in a crisis or when you're in tough times, this isn't the time that you can go start new relationships and build things. This is the time that you lean on and leverage the partnerships that you have built during good times. And so, I think that for me was the biggest lesson here. And I and I think going forward, really taking that to heart that hey, sometimes in good times, I think businesses can think of the world as transactional. You know, I'm going to move this vendor from one to the other because it's five cents cheaper. Well, that comes back to bite you in tough times, I think. When you really partner and over long term and you get to know people and you build a partnership, when things are tough, that's when you need that. And I think that's been the biggest lesson I've taken from this.
0: Did it help the company to allow you to bring some people back?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think first off, when you think about our factories, um, the factories were closing. But the fact that we were going to be making protective equipment, we were able to reopen the factory these are factories in, in Tennessee and Honduras and in Vietnam that otherwise would have been completely shuttered. So figuring out how to operate and social distance, we did that really quickly, but those factories were able to be operational. So that was huge, especially in countries where you don't have a strong social safety net. As you look at Sandmar and our employees, most of our employees in the United States in, in our distribution, our corporate office, we had cut hours, we had cut salaries, but we didn't lay anybody off. And I am really proud to say that I brought everybody's salary back as of June 1st to their full salary. Certainly a big piece of that is the mask. It's also that our regular business is coming back. And I think that people recognize the world didn't end. And, you know, as as states start to open and hopefully in a really safe way, that um, there is business and that there's opportunity. And so, you know, today we are basically at the same number of employees that we had Prior to COVID, and we're at full hours and full salaries for all of them.
0: And it's one thing to respond to a crisis in real time, and it's another thing to prevent a problem arising in the first place. And I know you're deeply committed to sustainability. You've got a massive global supply chain. How do you go about making that more sustainable? And what are the steps you've taken on the way so that you know, we really do have a positive effect by the product we're making, rather than creating a problem that we've got to fix for further down the road.
1: First off, I, I see it two ways. I mean, there's a, I think just a moral imperative and a and an economic one. Somebody gave me an example. One of our customers does a conference every year, and they do about a hundred thousand dollars worth of swag that's given out at this conference. And they've had done it for several years. And they called their company that was putting on the conference, and they said. Hey, let's start talking about, you know, what we want to give away next year. And the company called back and said, Hey, this year, we've decided not to give any swag away. We're going to give carbon offsets to the people who are coming to our conference. But thanks very much. We'll call you, you know, in the future. And that customer lost a huge piece of their business. So for me, that's an economic wake up call that says if we can't make product in a sustainable way, Then companies and brands are going to choose not to buy our product or, or less of it. There's that piece. And then there's a fact that I live on this world with my six kids and I want it to be here. I want the quality of life that I've had to be here for my children and my grandchildren. We know that apparel and the textile industry has not have a positive track record on what it's done into the environment. That specifically around the creation of textiles and water treatment and, and wastewater. And so understanding that going deeper into your supply chain. And this is really hard because the supply chain is long and convoluted, but to really understand how your product is made, who's making your product, how they're making it. And then, you know, making the right investments to make sure that you're making product in a sustainable way is really, really important. And it's really hard to do
0: and the apparel industry like every industry has an achilles heel it has a challenge in terms of the perception of the industry and i think in the apparel world obviously there's these labor issues so how does your brand how does any brand go about taking on a long-term issue like that so that your employees feel good so retailers feel good so consumers feel good where do you begin help us think through that process
1: the biggest piece for us was Sanmar having a physical presence in every factory that we do business in, you know, it's one thing to go take the guided tour of the factory and say, oh, no, everything looks good and then not go back um, or go back once or twice a year and go take that guided tour again. It's a different thing to be there full-time. That took an that took an investment for us to do that. But when you make that investment, a few things happen. One, that factory can't outsource your production to another factory. A lot of the labor abuses that happen were not in factories where you thought your product was make, being made at. They were in factories you didn't know your product was being made at. When you have your auditors, your people, your employees there full-time, that's much harder to do. When you have People there that are, that aren't just sitting in a QC room going through boxes, but actually working sewing lines and working with the people. They get to know the people. They have built relationships. They understand if there's abuses that are happening. And so that for us has been the biggest change that we made is having a physical presence and having our people not just sitting in a room, not separate from the factory, but actually part of it and working the production lines. And so we feel like that has helped us really understand what's going on in a factory. And we've made decisions to move out of factories that we weren't comfortable with. And so we can use our buying power and influence to um, make a factory make positive changes because they understand there's value to them in doing it. And that's, our, I think, our biggest weapon that we have.
0: And it's so powerful to keep your suppliers, your factories sort of on notice that they're accountable. And at the same time, if you move through the supply chain, you've also got your customers. And I know that you do San Maru and you do San Mar radio to keep in contact with them. Tell us a little bit about what difference that makes to the business.
1: We really think education is such a critical piece of what we do. So we created San Maru as a vehicle for us to help educate our customers about decoration techniques, about factory information, about product information. Our customers sell apparel, but they also sell a lot of other products. And so they can't be experts on everything they sell. And so we try to give them education so that they can be an expert. So everything from what's the difference between a jersey knit and a pique knit to what does really sustainability mean when we say that, you know, an apparel product. It's been a really valuable piece for us, certainly our social media as well. I mean we tell stories through, Instagram and Facebook and, and so we're active across all of these different channels talking to our customers.
0: And as we look at this new purposeful economy, this new kind of reengineering of capitalism, what would you say to those who are sitting on the sidelines? Those who are thinking that maybe this is not their place to step in and re engineer what they're doing, or that, you know, consumers or employees won't reward them for doing so?
1: You know, I would tell people that I understand that sentiment i i under i I feel it because i think there's this transition from business being like my job is to buy something for x and sell it for more than x and treat people nice along the way a lot of us have grown up in that was the world and i i gave a talk to our employees last year and i said the crux of the cock was that the pace of change in the world will never be as slow as it is today because the world is accelerating and this change is happening whether we like it or not As business leaders, we have to recognize that our customers, their customers, our employees, our communities, our stakeholders, expect us to be active, positive participants in the world. It is not enough today just to buy something for X and sell it for more than X. And they will choose to work with companies that do that or or choose not to work with companies that don't. And so while I appreciate people who say, that's not what we do. That is where the world is today, and it is going there really fast. And I would just encourage people to recognize that and to start having conversations with people. If you don't feel that, talk to your employees, talk to your customers, talk to other stakeholders, because if you're not there today, you're going to be there. And I I really think that is where business is moving.
0: And give us a bit of a window into what you hope will be the future of business, the role it will play.
1: I don't think anybody has the same ability that industry does. And I think if you think about what industry has been able to do with just a capitalist kind of mindset, it's a phenomenal in some ways. But if you can combine that with a purpose, I think that you can move things so much faster. And I just think that it is such a powerful kind of medium. And so when those things align, it can generate so much good. And so that's my that's why I have a positive hope for. The future because i really think that's where the world is moving
0: fantastic thank you so much i really appreciate your time and also the leadership you've been providing on the strength of all the leadership of your father and and grandfather and it's really really exciting to see a company that's upstream in the supply chain being so responsible and really being an exemplar of responsible b2b behavior thanks for having me make sure you subscribe to lead with we on apple spotify and google and recommend it to your friends and colleagues, so they too can become a purposeful and sustainable company. If you'd like to learn more about how you can transition to becoming a purposeful brand, check out wefirstbranding.com where there's lots of free resources and case studies. See you on the next episode of Lead with WE.